Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, it turns out it was all fake. Meat shortage, that is. It was all fake. Seriously. The headline over at rawstory.com, it was a fake meat shortage. The reality is, and there's pieces in today in the New York Times and, the Washington, and uh, USA Today, excuse me, pointing this out, that the industry, when the meat industry... First of all, you had COVID discovered in a bunch of packing plants, okay? Smithfield was at the top of that list. Smithfield is the largest pork producer in the United States. They are owned by the Chinese. Let that sink in for a minute. And during the month of April, in the United States, we shipped 129,000 tons of pork to China. So we get the infections. The Chinese company that owns Smithfield gets the profit. The profit doesn't even go to the United States. We get the infections. We get to pay for the hospitalizations. We have our people die. And China gets 129,000 tons of pork in just one month just the month of April, when this was just like exploding. And so word gets out about the meatpacking plants. And I think probably, you know, credit where credit's due. Rachel Maddow really was the one who broke this story in a big way over on MSNBC. The meat processing industry immediately started issuing press releases saying there's going to be a meat shortage which freaked people out. Wendy's was like, oh my God, you know, we know we're going to have to dial back on burgers. And some stores started rationing meat because people were buying meat like they were buying toilet paper. There was never a meat shortage. Literally, there was never a meat shortage. And in the midst of the so-called meat shortage, we were shipping hundreds of thousands of tons of pork 
and beef and you know the chicken producers in the United States just got permission from the Trump administration to ship you know the slaughtered chicken to China where they will be processed by low wage workers and then they will ship you know the breasts and thighs and legs and stuff back here to the United States for you and me to eat. Uh, well, not for me to eat, but <laughs> for those of you who eat birds to eat. And uh, I mean, this is this is just mind-boggling. The Orlando Sun Sentinel has done some really good reporting on this. Michael Corkery and David Yaffe Bellani reporting Smithfield Foods was the first company to warn in April that the coronavirus pandemic was pushing the United States. And this is a quote from Smithfield Foods, the Chinese-owned pork producer here in the United States that produces pork here in the United States for export to China, the largest pork producer in in America. Smithfield Foods said, quote, the United States is perilously close to the edge in terms of our meat supply. That was back in April. That same month, just Smithfield sent 9,170 tons of pork to Americans? No, to Chinese. Now, frankly, I think the whole factory farming industry should be dismantled and people who want to eat meat should have their own chickens and cows and dogs and whatever, whatever meat they want to eat. But no, not dogs. Actually, in my mind, I mean, these are, these are all sentient beings. Smithfield was bought, by the way, by the Chinese in 2013. So far, 25,523 meat packers in the United States have contracted the virus. 89 have died. You know, over 600 doctors and nurses have died in the United States. Can you imagine what the Republican Party would be saying right now if 600 doctors and nurses and 89 meat packers had died because of decisions that Barack Obama made. Can you friggin' imagine how we would respond to that? Well, it turns out that what the industry was doing during this time was a slick little sleight of hand. Not only were they saying, oh, there's a meat shortage coming if we have to, you know, we've gotta be able to cram our workers in. So number one, they got Donald Trump to issue an executive order saying that meatpacking plants have to open back up, which is, of course, what they wanted. The owners of these factories aren't showing up. They're not working. They're not on the line. They're not going to get COVID. They're sheltering in place in their mansions or living in China. So, you know, it's just the workers. Who gives a rat's ass about the workers, right, In, in Trump world, in Republican world? So you've got some dead workers. Eh, eh, they were mostly mostly black and Hispanic anyway. Right? That was the other thing that was promoted. You know, fewer than a quarter of the people who work in meat processing plants are white. So therefore, they're disposable people. I mean, that, that was the, the entire subtext that we were hearing on Fox, Fox so-called news and right-wing hate media. And then they lobbied the Trump administration to give them an elimination of liability. Those workers, when they get sick, and they get hit with bills of as much as a million dollars. A guy, a, a guy, a couple days ago is, is all over the news. Um, sorry, I don't have the story right in front of me, so I can't give you his name. But um, got COVID, went to the hospital, got admitted, ended up getting really sick. He was in the ICU. He was on a ventilator. He recovered. He went home, and he got a bill for one point one million dollars. Other people have shown up at hospitals with sore throats and coughs, the symptoms of COVID, 
and feeling like crap, and they get the COVID test, and whether it's positive or negative, they get home and there's a bill for 2,000 bucks. We're literally the only country in the world that does this. But in any case, the Trump administration was lobbied by the meat processing industry. Help us force our workers to go back to work. And, you know, this was pioneered by the pork and chicken producers and beef producers across the country. And, and we've seen, you know, the major outbreaks in this country have been in nursing homes, which are, you know, Sima Verma is, you know, the head of the Health and Human Services, HHS, is supposed to be uh, responsible for this. <laughs> right. Uh, nursing homes, which are, are, you know, federally regulated, but not. There's no oversight. And meatpacking plants. And this is just exploding across the country. So now, so A, they got Trump to say, okay, you must reopen. Cool. That's what we wanted. And the workers, you must go back to work. And if you don't go back to work, you can't get unemployment benefits. And now Anthony Scalia's son, Eugene Scalia, who is a lawyer who spent his whole life lobbying, working against unions, is in charge of the Department of Labor, the organization that oversees unions and labor in general. And Scalia is working with governors in red states to prevent people from getting unemployment benefits if they're afraid to go back to work because, you know, maybe they're over 40, which means, you know, you have a much higher chance of dying. Or maybe they're overweight or they've got diabetes or heart condition or asthma. Any of those things that might cause you to die pretty easily if you get COVID. You would think they could say, you know, I'm not going to go back to work, at least not for that pay, and risk my life. But no, Eugene Scalia and Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress, no. Tough luck. got a, a note this morning from one of the largest pharmacies in Canada that ships to the United States. They've got a lot of U.S. citizens who are customers of theirs. And I was one a number of years ago, and I'm still on their list. And it says, continue to increase the broad range of pharmaceutical products going out of stock. It's being experienced by distributors worldwide, including in the U.S. Most of the products with an out-of-stock status have no estimated restock date, which is very unusual. This is very concerning because we've never seen so many products out of stock in the history of our business. For example, the antidepressant Zoloft is now unavailable worldwide. Why? Because it comes out of China. The, the raw ingredients are almost exclusively made in China, and then the pills are processed in India. And China's having problems with COVID, and so it's a meltdown. Let's expand that logic to chicken. Says uh, the Trump administration. Tony Corbo is on the line with us. He is the senior government affairs representative with Food and Water Watch and Food and Water Action. Food and A-N-D. Foodandwaterwatch.org is the website. And Food and Water Watch also is the Twitter handle. Tony, welcome to the program. Tell us what the deal is here. What's the connection between chicken being grown in the United States and China? This has been going on for 15 years now. China has wanted to export poultry to the United States. It came about as a result of our mad cow case in, in 2003, where China was a big importer of U.S. beef, and then they stopped importing because of the mad cow case that was found here. 
And so when USDA attempted to restore our export market to China for beef, China came back and said, we want to be able to export poultry to the United States in exchange. In 2005, the George W. Bush administration proposed a rule that would allow China to export uh, poultry to the United States, but they put in a condition that the slaughtered chicken would have to come from an approved source. And at the time, the only approved sources were the U.S. and Canada. And we would ship the raw carcass over to China. They would process it, cook it, and then send it back here. And so in 2006, even though the USDA received many comments, most of them opposed to this scheme, USDA approved granting China equivalency status for their processing inspection system. But China was not satisfied with that. They kept on pressing USDA for their ability to process and slaughter their own poultry to send to the United States. And so while we haven't received too much chicken under the provisions of the 2006 rule, there was only one shipment, and then that happened in 2017, of 110 pounds of breaded chicken nuggets and, and patties, China has consistently tried to get USDA to let them ship their own poultry to the United States. And sure enough, in 2019, as part of the deal that the Trump administration signed with China to lessen the tensions in the trade war that the Trump administration essentially caused, USDA finally gave the go-ahead for China to ship its own poultry to the United States. They haven't done so yet, but it sets up the system for China to export to the United States. Now, outside of the obvious, anything made in China is taking jobs away from the United States and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I say that, you know, with some ambivalence as somebody who doesn't eat birds, you know, as a, as a vegetarian, an occasional pescatarian, I suppose. But why should we be concerned about the fact that our chicken might start coming from China? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, China's food safety record is very checkered. One of the reasons that USDA would not allow, originally would not allow China to ship its own poultry here to the United States is that China hid for the longest periods of time the extent to which their poultry flocks were infected with high pathogenic avian influenza. So that was one of the restrictions that was placed originally. What's interesting that's happened fairly recently is that China has now designated two Cargill plants. Cargill built plants in China for poultry slaughter and poultry processing. And so now those two plants, they constitute half of the approved plants that China has designated being able to export to the United States. One of the new Cargill plants has the ability to slaughter 225 birds per minute. The current maximum here in the United States, even under a deregulated inspection system, is 175. So we're fearing what's going to happen here is that eventually U.S. companies are going to start outsourcing their chicken processing abroad, and specifically China. Now, Cargill is not the only company that has plants there. Tyson has plants in China. Keystone Foods has plants in China. OSI has plants in China. So it could be just a matter of time before China starts designating those factories to be able to export to the United States. There's been all sorts of controversy over the safety of our 
poultry plants, our meatpacking plants, and it's really been highlighted during this COVID crisis here in the United States. So why not ship everything off to China, have them process it, because those workers don't have the the same same rights. Right. So right now we are desperately freaked out because drugs are not available in the United States because they're all made in China. Pretty soon it might be food is not available in the United States because it's made in China. 70% of our apple juice is actually imported from China right now. A lot of our seafood is imported from China. So poultry could be the very next thing that winds up shifting abroad. And this is just so that giant companies like Cargill can kill more chickens per hour and pay their workers lower wages than they're paying the people, uh, which are probably already fairly low wages here in the United States to uh, slaughter and process and and raise, for that matter, these chickens. Is this going to put American farmers out of business? It could very well put American farmers out of business if these companies, I mean, you have these unfair contracting practices here to begin with, the big poultry companies that essentially pay farmers peanuts to raise the poultry that's eventually slaughtered in these big factories here in the United States. And so it could very well shift the production abroad. Tony Cordo with Food and Water Watch, foodandwaterwatch.org, the website. Tony, thanks for dropping by. Thank you for having me on, Tom. It's like Trump has given all his lip service to stopping China. It's like, hey, let's outsource chicken to China, just like we outsource toys and pharmaceuticals and electronics and fill in the blank. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Louise and I were walking down the trail the other day along the Columbia River here, and there's this long area where these bright yellow flowers. I used to know the name of them when I was a kid, but these beautiful yellow flowers. And I remember literally 30, 40, 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago when I was a kid, a pile of flowers like that, a, a half an acre of flowers like that would be filled with bees. And we walked about a quarter mile along these, these flowers that were, you know, just wildflowers that were covering this path and didn't see one single honeybee. We saw two of the bumblebees, the I believe they live in the ground kind of bees, and we saw a few flies, and that was it. Mute Schempf is with us, the food campaigner with Friends of the Earth Europe, foeeurope.org is the website. Mute's Twitter handle is M-U-T-E-S-C-H-I-M. Mute, welcome to the program. I read this piece that was published by Andrea Germanos over on Common Dreef, saying the insects save the farmers, save ourselves. Is what I'm seeing a local phenomena, or is this worldwide? And and how serious is this vanishing, and I realize it goes way beyond the bees, this vanishing insect problem? I mean, when we started compiling information, we were already aware that the situation is not good. But we were really shocked about the bee dimension. Insects are in decline all over the world, and the main driver for the insect loss is industrial farming, and especially heavy pesticide use. And um, this also impacts the farm insect itself because without insects, a lot of our crops could not grow because they are dependent on the pollination. It's broccoli, it's almond, it's cherries. A lot of our food depends actually around three quarters of our food are depending on pollination of insects. So therefore, the sharp decline of them should make us treat them very differently than we do at the moment. So we're literally looking at a world that might be experiencing substantial losses of food as a consequence of the loss of insects. And we're not talking about eating the insects. We're talking about the insects being the pollinators that produce food. We talk about all insects. I mean, insects can also be plant pests. They can also cause harm to, to crops. Um, but mm-hmm. one third of the insects who are responsible for the pollination of food groups are under threat. And in total, one threat of all insects on this planet are threatened by extinction. It's important for our nature, so we definitely should change. 
how we do agriculture. Is this being driven exclusively by, or, or even largely by the use of chemical pesticides, or is it also, I understand the other big factor is loss of habitat. How do we rank threats to the insect population that in a secondary way threatens literally our survival as a species? The public interest and research focusing on insects is quite limited. So in some regions or some species, we have quite some good ideas. For others, we don't even know that some species might exist. Some regions say we only know maybe one quarter of all insects that are actually exist on this planet. Um, one key driver is definitely industrial agriculture because having monocultures using fertilizers, using pesticides, having um, very um, standardized landscapes, impacts the survival, impacts the seed for, um, for insects. Of course, also yeah. loss of ecosystems and growing cities and having no roads. So limit the, eco, uh, the ecosystem for the insects themselves, also our key driver. But it's very clear that especially the use of pesticides are double threat because sometimes they harm the insects directly. And secondly, by killing the weeds that the insects normally would eat, they just don't have enough to survive or to exist. It's a huge issue. Mute Shem, thank you so much for dropping by today. It's great speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks. That's Friends of Earth Europe, F-O-E, Europe.org is the website. Twitter handle M-U-T-E-S-C-H-I-M. Carol in Manassas, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, you're on the air. Hi, Tom. You know, I've lived in this country a long time, and I've never, ever had this feeling before that we really don't have a president in the White House. I feel like he's just somehow moved on. He has no regard for the lives lost from COVID-19, for black lives, for police violence, for any of these things. All he's interested in now is just kind of rolling back regulations. It's a terrible feeling. I mean, I really don't think we have any leadership anymore in this country. Yeah, and he's rolling back these regulations specifically to get more campaign contributions from the billionaires and the corporations that made them billionaires that are polluting. These giant corporations, in fact, his first legislative action or, or act when he became president was to roll back the standards that prevented coal companies from dumping poison arsenic containing tailings uh, mining waste in rivers uh, that right. would then poison the children you know whose downstream cities were taking this water it's not that he hates the environment i don't think he gives a rat's ass frankly it's no. that there are powerful interests who will give him money which is the only thing he cares about. It's the only currency that, that has any meaning in his life. Give him money if he will reduce regulations that protect people from corporate misbehavior. And that's all he's doing. That and with the Federalist Society and Mitch McConnell putting judges in. And these are judges who go along with these deregulatory policies as well. So spot on, Carol. And I share your despair is not the right word. Concern that America actually needs a president, particularly at this point in crisis. And we don't have one. Scott in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind today? All these Republican governors that are all excited about getting the Republican convention in their states, and with no regard for masks or distancing or all that stuff. And my first thought was that it was evolution in action, that all these Republicans, all these crazy deniers are going to get together, they're going to spread the virus between each other, 
and a lot of them are going to die. And it just seems ridiculous, but almost inevitable that evolution takes over and kills all the crazy people. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, the, my concern uh, is much greater, frankly, for all the protesters. Yeah, I was telling your screener that in my business, I have a sign on the front door that says, if you want to come in, have a mask on. And if you don't, I'll meet you outside and all that stuff. But and so I'm I'm really conscious of it. And in our area, most of the people are wearing masks when you go to a store or whatever. But you can kind of tell from the people that you see that aren't wearing masks that their attitude is kind of, I don't believe it. It just seems to me that there's a whole lot of people that are not smart on this subject. It just, it's, it seems crazy to me. And they've been sold a whole bill of goods by Fox News and Right Wing Hate Radio about how this is the patriotic position. When Louise yeah. and I were walking yesterday, there was a guy who was coming down the trail. The trail is about maybe three feet wide, right? It's, it's, a, it's a path along the river. He was walking right down the middle toward us. Now, we always walk off the edge of it to the right, and then people will walk off the edge of it to the left who are coming towards us. So we're about six feet apart, and we're both walking on the grass on either side of the trail or the rocks or whatever it may be. This guy was yeah. right down the middle, and he was a tall, beefy guy with a crew cut, and he was wearing a T-shirt with an American flag on the front, and he didn't have a mask or anything. And he was not going to move out of the way. He was not going to move out of my way. If I'd stood in the middle, he would have walked right into me. And, you know, Louise and I got way up on the grass, off, off away from him, and he looked at us like sneering, you know, like, you pathetic people. And I'm like, isn't it so sad that we have a literally a billion-dollar media machine owned by a billionaire, Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan, running this thing and, and using the instinct for patriotism, which should be a positive thing, to turn people into asses, into fools, and, 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 and putting their own lives at risk and other people's lives as well. It's just, it's just crazy. Scott, thank you for the call. It's nice to hear from you. And thanks for watching us there in Kingston, Washington. On the line with us is Caroline Henderson, the senior climate campaigner with Greenpeace US, uh, greenpeace.org slash USA, and her Twitter handle is C-A-R-O-H-E-N-D, at Carohend. On June 4th of this year, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Donald Trump signed this executive order that specifically said that basically every federal agency could ignore environmental rules if that's what it took to restart the economy. You're pointing out that this has nothing to do with COVID-19 or the current economic crisis, that this long predates that, and that this is basically another part of his uh, racist uh, pro-extractive industry and carbon industry agenda. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and thanks for having me. Um, so as you mentioned earlier this month on June 4th, Donald Trump took two actions to weaken environmental regulations and public health protections. And in doing so, um, that was really an effort to further his anti-environment racist agenda that's been ongoing since he took office. Uh, so those two actions that he took, the first of them was an executive order instructing his administration to use their, quote, emergency authorities to bypass environmental regulations and speed up fossil fuel projects like mines and pipelines. 
And this order basically allows the White House officials to go around bedrock environmental laws like the Endangered Species Act and the National Environmental Policy Act and essentially undercuts public participation in decisions affecting communities near infrastructure projects. And then the second of those actions um, was a decision um, from President Trump's Environmental Protection Agency to propose a new rule that will allow the Trump administration to downplay the economic benefit of public health protections, essentially in order to to write weaker rules. Um, So what this means, we need to recognize these two decisions and Trump's broader efforts to undermine environmental protections for what they are, and that is that Trump's anti-environment agenda is a racist agenda. Um, And we can see that everywhere from... Oh, go ahead. No, I I was just going to ask you to expand on that. You know, I I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people don't immediately conflate anti-environmentalism with racism, or anti-environmental mm-hmm. policies, they don't realize how heavily those policies fall on the backs of, of uh, black and brown people and indigenous people. We can see evidence of this in a few places. First off, looking at air pollution. Let's just take, for example, Trump's decision in April of this year during a global pandemic to weaken regulations on particulate matter pollution, despite the fact that communities who are continuously exposed to this type of pollution are more likely to have fatal outcomes from COVID-19. And this decision deepens environmental racism given the fact that people living near coal and oil power plants and thus exposed to this pollution are disproportionately black, indigenous, and people of color. Um, And that is just one of more than 100 environmental rules that President Trump has attempted to weaken or repeal, um, and many of those will have a disproportionate impact on black, brown, and indigenous communities and further jeopardize public health during a pandemic. Um, It is worth noting here that most of these efforts have been stalled by Congress or or are in the courts, uh, but they still make Trump's malicious intent quite clear. Um, The other area to look at is Trump's attempts to expand fossil fuel infrastructure while while ignoring the public health impacts, um, the need for community input, uh, or respect for indigenous sovereignty. So within days of taking office, uh, Trump attempted to fast-track the Keystone XL and Dakota Dakota Access pipelines via executive order. And this decision on June 4th, um, similarly, instead of protecting public health, is essentially a rollback um, to benefit the oil and gas industry that has for decades been wrecking our climate and treating working class communities of color as sacrifice zones. You know, in a way, I suppose this shouldn't surprise anybody. The Republican Party since uh, the Reagan revolution has essentially been, uh, you know, up for sale to the highest bidder and, and among the wealthiest corporations in the world have been, you know, prior to 2000, it was tobacco and, and oil. Now it's oil and mining and God only knows what all. And yet, you know, it's kind of shocking that this is happening. What We're talking with Carolyn Henderson, the senior climate campaigner with Greenpeace here in the U.S., greenpeace.org slash USA. Carolyn, what should we do about this? What can individual Americans do about this? Yeah, right now, Greenpeace, among others, are urging leaders in Congress to step in and stop 
Donald Trump's ongoing attempts to put lives at stake so that polluters can profit. And this is really part of a broader resistance that we're mounting to Trump's ongoing racist anti-environment agenda. And that starts with calling it for what it is. So if folks want to learn more, they can go to, as you said, greenpeace.org to take action and, and get involved with that resistance. Absolutely astonishing that they're able to get away with this and that there isn't a a stronger pushback. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank you. You too. Great having you with us. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Defending America from the conservative weapons of mass deception. Tom Hartman here right with you. So a couple of other things that I want to talk about, and this is, you know, another one of these grim stories. Can you imagine if one of Donald Trump's snowflakes, if just one of these white guys that feel that they have to walk around with giant guns to compensate for their own inadequacies, if even one of them was shot and killed or even badly beaten up, by a Black Lives Matter protester, or even a white Black Lives protester. We would know their name. They would be, you know, it'd be like Kate Steinle, the woman who was, quote, illegal alien, an undocumented, I believe it was from Mexico, dropped a gun in San Francisco, had discharged accidentally and killed her. And she became a hero. I mean, every single day for weeks on Fox News and right-wing hate radio. Oh my God, Kate Steinle, she's dead. Oh, poor Kate, here's her family. Oh my God. If even one had died, and yet the, ax- the absolute opposite is happening. We saw yesterday, or day before yesterday, I believe it was, June 15th. Yeah, day before yesterday, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And by the way, I reported this wrong yesterday, so let me correct the record. In fact, several people have contacted me to correct the record, and thank you for that. And there was this protest, and there was a right-wing militia who showed up, and, of course, the Black Lives Matter protesters. And... Then this crazy guy, his name is Stephen Ray Baca, showed up with a gun and shot and critically wounded Scott Williams, one of the protesters in Albuquerque. Now, yesterday I reported that uh, Baca was a member of the militia. I was wrong. He was not. In fact, one of the militia members actually helped restrain Baca. But frankly, I would suggest to you that Baca, he was a Trump supporter. He showed up at Trump rallies. There's pictures of him wearing his Make America Great hat. And he comes and he shoots somebody. I suspect that if the militia hadn't been there with their guns, he wouldn't have felt quite so safe wading into the crowd with his own gun. I mean, nobody realized what he was going to do until he started shooting. He was an alternative delegate from New Mexico to the 2016 Republican National Convention. The shooter. In September 2019, he, uh, he went to the Albuquerque Trump rally, wearing a MAGA hat. He wrote about an awesome time and a great rally. I mean, this guy's a total maggot. The Albuquerque Tea Party itself put him on their board of directors and described this guy who tried to kill somebody as a hardcore conservative. Then on June 5th, the Texas man came in with a chainsaw 
at Black Lives Matter protesters in McAllen, Texas. Daniel Pena, he ranted in an apparent reference to uh, George Floyd. It was an effing N-word and a bad cop. And then he assaulted the protesters, ripping signs from their hands and revving a chainsaw at them while screaming racial slurs. Trump's campaign manager, Mercedes Schlapp, amplified a tweet that praised his racist assault. Seriously, this tweet said, I want this guy with me in a, ra- in a ride or die moment. Right. Bogdan Vecherko drove a tanker truck through protesters on a highway in Minneapolis on May 31st. Tried to kill people. Didn't succeed. He hit a bunch of people. Thousands of people fl- fled in panic. This is an 18-wheeler. He is a Trump donor. He has made contributions to the Trump Make America Great Again Committee. And he's made donations to the Republican National Committee. He is one of among 19 documented vehicle attacks on protesters. 19 times. On May 30th in Omaha, bar owner Jay Gardner killed a 22-year-old African-American man, James Skurlock, during anti-racist protests in Nebraska City. Gardner, the killer, was a volunteer with the Trump campaign in 2016 and used racial slurs against Skurlock before firing his gun. The Douglas County attorney, Doug Klein, took less than 48 hours to decide that this killer was acting in self-defense and say, eh, we're not going to press any charges. Is this our new normal? White terrorists killing protesters, killing people exercising their First Amendment right to peaceably assemble and petition their government for redress of grievance and to have free speech? Is this our new normal? Have we entered that era? Is this like the rise of the new pseudo-confederacy? I know that there's this whole movement, you know, the whole Boogaloo Boys thing of, hey, let's have a civil war. Let's start, let's try to start a civil war. Are we here yet? Or is this going to calm down? I am not hearing Republicans go to the floor of the House or the Senate to denounce these people. And I guarantee you, if a black person had killed, you know, for a while when they thought that maybe protesters had killed those two cops in California, they were all over it. Oh my God, oh my God. Well, it turns out it was a right winger. You're listening to Suddenly the Tom silence. Hartman Program. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Brandon in Texas. Hey, Brandon, what's on your mind? Seems like it's a big talking point about this officer in Minneapolis who has all these complaints against him. So, you know, it must be justified that he's a horrible person. Now, my wife is an officer. My next door neighbor is an officer. And I can assure you, and I'm sure everyone knows, there's a lot more good officers than bad. Now, what we don't hear about is what those complaints were. Because anyone can call in a complaint on any officer at any given time, and that is noted in the record. Now, we don't have information on what actually was done. Now, that officer, what he did to Mr. Floyd was actually disgusting. I'm sorry, we do have a record of what those complaints are and what they they were. Okay. This guy has a history, not just of getting a few complaints here and there, but of, you know, essentially sadistic behavior. So, you know, your point is well taken, Brandon, and I get it, and there's a lot of good cops out there, and nobody is denying that. fact of the matter is this man was a, a stone-cold killer. Jonathan in Portland, Oregon. Hey, John, what's up? Uh, Jonathan, what's up? Hi, Hi Tom. Um, I'd like people to remember the number two when you're thinking of police officers, and here's why. If you want to become a police officer, whether it's in Portland or New York City, the requirements are very simple. You need to have a high school diploma or GED with a 2.0 average. 2.0 is barely a passing C. Now, to give people an understanding of what that means, there's over 1,500 colleges and universities in the United States. And if you were to apply to those colleges or universities, exactly seven would accept you. That's bad. Uh, And yet, uh, if a starting salary for police officer in Portland, $66,000 a year. That's more than a, a biological scientist would make. Now, mm. 
in the United States, um, by the time you're 18 years old, the chances are anywhere between 16 and 27 percent of the U.S. population has already been arrested. That's not just black people. It's both, mostly black people. And this is why the police are so violent. And what's happening as a result of this violence to black people, and particularly to young black men, 14, 15-year-old men, being very heavily affected, they have a 3.5% less likely to graduate high school, 2.5% less likely to go to college, and a 15% chance of having some type of psychological disturbance or depression. And this is what's happening to the country. It's lack of education. And it's the citizens of this country that need to demand that police all around the country be educated. Raise the standard to a college degree. If you become a Portland police officer, they give you an incentive for a college degree. You know what it is? Two percent. Citizens need to value education. And this is why we're beating our heads against the wall, because we're talking to a wall. We're, we're trying to come up with solutions. These people do not understand reason and logic. They don't understand. They are, they are <clears throat> recruited specifically to be the way they are, and we are getting the exact results that we're supposed to get, and that's the reality. Yeah, they understand the use of force. Jonathan, you, uh, you know, the numbers you've been tossing out, 66000 a year is starting pay for police uh, here in Portland. Very specific information. Uh, you sound like you're well informed on this. Have you been working on this issue, or did you just read a really good newspaper article? Or you know, I, I, I ask because you know, if if you are involved with this, I'd like to know about organizations in Portland that are working to to change our policing. Well, first of all, I mean, I I, I have a background as in research, but I, I've always been interested in education. I'm an educator. And uh, mm-hmm. I've always been disturbed by the fact that, you know, in a very practical way, we're not getting a good value for our money. I don't think right. that having someone with barely a high school diploma, you should pay $66,000 a year. But, you know, the, you can't appeal to people. I mean, so let, step back from policing for a moment and just talk about education, because people have conflated education with vocational schools, right? You, and you, have, you go to college to get a job. You don't go to college to get a job. You go to college to learn to be a human being. And what we need in the society are better human beings. That's what we really need. But yes, the, yeah. the, the best article you want to read a recent article um, from some, some the Harvard researcher. It's called Killings by American Police. It's in The Economist, um, and uh, that'll explain a lot of it. I'll look it up. And Jonathan, you just did a great description of the, of the goal of a liberal education, and so much of that has been left behind by this whole movement toward STEM education, basically. A couple of interesting things here. I just got an email from Don Jr. I've been getting these emails, as you know, since uh, 2015. You know, when I gave five bucks to the Trump campaign, you know, I did this with a bunch of campaigns because I wanted to get on the mailing list and I'm still on Trump's mailing list. And in fact, there's a a couple of ways you can get on his mailing list without even giving him five bucks. And I encourage you to do it just to see the kind of stuff these guys are sending out to get a sense of what they're talking about. I got an email a couple days ago that said uh, I was sitting down. It was like from Brad Parscale, I think, or somebody like that in the campaign. He says, I was sitting down with President Trump and he noticed that your name is not on the list. And then I got another one, you know, maybe a week ago that said, President Trump specifically told me he would like to have dinner with you and your significant other, your spouse. 
Please uh, chip in a donation to join the raffle, essentially, for these Meals with Trump. By the way, Judd Lagum outed some months ago the fact that nobody ever actually wins those contests. But they must really think that they're... Not even they must not think. I I was going to say they must think that the average person who's getting these emails is really stupid. But the fact of the matter is they've been doing them like this for three and a half years. It must be that it works. It worked. This very intimate, you know, well, President Trump noticed your name wasn't on the list this week. I get at least one a week of those kind of, you know, those kind of things. You were one of our greatest supporters, you know, Fred. And now, you know, it's absolutely bizarre and absolutely fascinating. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. But anyway, so there's a lot going on. Let's let's pick up your phone calls here. Ed in Mansfield, Ohio. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind today? You know, there's four senators that have allegedly dump stock right after coronavirus meeting. However, as you said earlier, Richard Burr has been dealt with the most harsh. I'm wondering, you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee came out with a bipartisan report saying, yes, Russia did interfere in the election, and yes, they did want Trump to win. Um, I think that's maybe why Burr has been targeted so heavily. Oh, count on it. Count on it. I, that, that's that's the point that I was trying to make, Ed, is that mm-hmm. Trump is going after Burr. He sent the FBI after Burr because Burr is now his political enemy, even though he's a Republican. And Burr is retiring, right. by the way, as well. So so Trump doesn't give a rat's ass about the future of Richard Burr. So he's going after no. Richard Burr. But Kelly Loeffler, she's up for reelection in Georgia. She's not retiring. Uh, she may win that seat. Who knows? And uh, and her husband is the president of the New York Stock Exchange. And, you know, mm-hmm. Trump ha- has fantasies of someday the Trump comp- organization going uh, going public and all this kind of stuff. So uh, and 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 her husband gave a million dollars to a Trump super PAC. So, you know, surprise, surprise. And it may well be and one of the super PACs that, that's paying huge salaries to Trump and his kids. Again, right. so go ahead. Ed. You have Jim. M- you have Jim Imhoff, who's one of the biggest clients climate change deniers who also yeah. has, you know, scot- skated scot-free so far. So. Yeah, and then and then Diane Feinstein was the fourth one that they were accusing, but uh, she yes. uh, she's actually a very, very wealthy woman. Her husband, I believe, is right. a billionaire, or at least a multi-multi-millionaire. And she has a professional money manager who handles all her stuff, and she doesn't interact with mm-hmm. him. So she's been able to demonstrate that, and nobody's suggesting, to the best of my knowledge, that Diane Feinstein uh, you know, was dirty in this thing. But uh, it was right. just a lucky call or a good call on the part of her money manager. But but that, uh, you know, that's that's the that's the lineup. And the one guy who said Trump was put into office by the Ru- Russians, even though he's a Republican, is the one guy that the FBI is knocking on his door. It stinks. Yeah. Ed, thanks for the call. Jim in Tower, Minnesota. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Trump's speech I heard early in the year when he was in Europe. I think it was in the Netherlands where he mm-hmm. said he was going to get back at Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats for impeaching him. He was going to eliminate Social Security. And yeah, I was well, before he, he, May, he, he, and I'm kind of concerned. Yeah, he's not going to. Every Republican president since Eisenhower has taken a run at this. Uh, the most successful was Reagan. He made Social Security benefits taxable. They didn't used to be. And uh, he raised the Social Security retirement age from 65 to 67. And it didn't phase in until just the last couple of years. And he doubled the Social Security tax, which was arguably necessary. That was, you know, George W. Bush in 1979 campaigned, or uh, I guess it was 78, the 78 election. He ran for Congress from Texas for the House of Representatives, the U.S. House, and he lost. 
because his single campaign shtick was privatizing Social Security. In 2005, when he won re-election, he came right out and he said, you know, I've got political capital from winning re-election. I'm going to use it to privatize Social Security. And he, I believe he spoke in 24 different cities. He traveled all around the United States giving speeches about how important and how urgent it is to privatize Social Security. Right now, turn it all over to Jamie Dimon and the banksters. And the more often he spoke about it, the lower his favorability ratings went. So, Jim, I'm, I'm really not worried about that. There's a very easy fix for the small problems that Social Security is facing right now, and that is simply to require billionaires and millionaires and multimillionaires to pay the exact same percentage of their income into the Social Security Trust Fund as you and I do, as people who make under $130,000 a year do. It's a very simple, very straightforward. And that's it. You know, it's called lifting the cap. But I wouldn't worry. He's not going to do it. Harry in Lompoc, California. Cognizant disconnect. We have RT, Russian TV. We have BBC, British Broadcasting Company. Why is it that Fox seems to lead our country when it's a foreign entity? What are your thoughts on that? Well, Rupert Murdoch did acquire U.S. citizenship. I don't know if his sons have. I'm assuming that they're dual citizens. And Prince uh, Talal al-Awid, if if I'm remembering his name correctly, who used to own 7% of Fox News or of News Corp, sold that right after 9-11. So right now, as far as I know, Fox and News Corp are actually American-owned companies. What am I missing? That's intriguing. Um, I know that he, being Rupert Murdoch, had been seeking American citizenship for quite some time. And I had heard that he had at one time sought citizenship in China. Is that correct? Well, he was married to a Chinese national. He was married to uh, Wendy Dang, his wife, for some years. In fact, there was considerable concern that she was actually a spy for China. Interesting. Well, I don't know um, if he was looking for a- citizenship or not, but... Right, right. It seems as though he's he, there is a broader context and it has... Harry, you want to do a little bit of a fascinating deeper dive on this. Pull up your favorite search engine. My favorite is duckduckgo.com and plug into it Kevin Rudd in quotes, R-U-D-D. He's a former prime minister of Australia. Kevin Rudd and Rupert Murdoch in quotes, those two names. And you will get an op-ed that Kevin Rudd published last year in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is the largest newspaper in Australia and the largest paper in Sydney. And Sydney is kind of the New York city of Australia. And in that op-ed, Kevin Rudd, in fact, I think the title of it might be Rupert Murdoch is the cancer on Australian democracy. And he goes through how Rupert Murdoch destroyed democracy in, in Australia and then went to the United Kingdom and damaged democracy there and then came to the United States, and now he's, he's bringing that cancer to the United States. It's a fascinating article. I, I highly recommend it. I really appreciate that. That's very intriguing. I would like to, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I'd like to close by saying my, my degree studies have taken me into, because archaeology and, and philosophy has taken me into learning certain aspects about ancient culture, such as rune lore. I would suggest that Fox in capital letters, F-O-X, is runic symbology not too dissimilar to what it is that Hitler, his subcultural group, was utilizing as a means of using kind of symbology as a form of uh, subterfuge? So just a thought for you. Any idea what those uh, three particular letters mean in a runic context? Yes, I know exactly what they mean. That's the old Norse language? What? It's Germanic, yes. I don't know how much time we have, but uh, fair and balanced is is, and its dichotomy are ingrained within an aspect of that. 
Fascinating. Well, you know, tweet me any details you've got. I'd love to see them. Harry, thanks a lot for the call. Connie in Reno, Nevada. Hey, Tom, I'm just concerned that the with all the conversation about in, improving our police departments, that it always goes to high education, to uh, college degrees. And to me, it just seems like what we're missing is the human aspect of it. What we need are people that have empathy, conflict resolution skills, things that are difficult to teach in the classroom. And we've never had a better education, better educated population than we have today. And yet it hasn't solved all the problems because we keep missing people. And there's a lot of people out there that would make great police officers, but maybe they have a blemish on their record from when they were young. Um, And that seems to just, you cannot be a police officer with anything on your record. So what we're left with are people, we would end up with all college-educated people that have never been in a scuffle who don't understand that world. And it's a difficult world, and I think we're missing a, a really important point here. I grew up in a small town with officers who had been in trouble before they became police officers. And, you know, they just knew everybody. They knew how to treat people. And I, I think that's the part that we're missing in this whole thing. I don't have a college degree, and I've always been looked down on in my jobs because of it. And, and I often scrap, walk away scratching my head thinking how they don't seem that bright sometimes um, just going to school. You need people with that empathy and, like I say, conflict resolution ability. Yeah. So that's my take yeah, on there's, it. Uh, and a good one. It's a concept called emotional intelligence, the EQ quotient. Yes. Uh, it was a big fan Absolutely. back in the 80s and 90s. I'm forgetting the name of the author who came up with it, but there are some people who are very, very smart. They've got very high IQs. They've got lousy emotional intelligence, low EQs. And there are people who have, you know, extraordinary emotional intelligence. They have empathy. They have understanding. They have insight. But they may not be able to do, you know, quadratic equations. Uh, right. You know, they may not have uh, even the propensity, even the, the, the desire to have a college education. But they really should be in the police, you know, or in, you know, however we reinvent them. I think that's such an important point, Connie. And thank you for... Uh, for making it and 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 prov- and stopping this um, conversation, this you know, let's simplify all this down to we need more education, we need more money, whatever it may be. We've tried all those things, you know. We and and uh, you know, I, I think some of the some of the nastiest people on earth have had college educations. So, <laughs> Connie, well said. Brittany in uh, Los Angeles, hey Brittany, what's up? Hey, so um, my boyfriend had just showed me your podcast. I think it's awesome. Uh, we're recently, we've been reading a book called The Economic Hitman by John Perkins, and it's disgusted me with how America has treated other countries and how the luxuries that we have on the backs of, of debt from other countries and how there's migrants coming from Central America right now because of what we've been doing to their countries. So I've even thought, like, maybe I should move out of the country because, the you know, the quality of life here isn't as high as what it shows on TV, but I think mm-hmm. that would be kind of running away from the problem. And I was wondering... Well, plus you know, nobody is going to take us, Brittany. Canada is no longer <laughs> basically taking American citizens. I know. I'm like, well, maybe Portugal or Costa Rica or just somewhere that's, you know... Mexico just kicked a bunch of us out. You know, the rest of the yeah, world is looking at us going, oh, man, no way. And you can kind of see the evolution of this. The rest of the world first respected us, then feared us. Now they feel sorry for us. 
it's disgusting. And where our government is going right now with corporatocracy, with the Glass-Steagall Act from the 90s, with economic hitmen around the world, Amazon not paying taxes, like, what is it? The only, the only reason why I would stay here is because I would want to take action that was meaningful. Mm. You can't just write to a congressman. I kind of feel like they're all a part of it. Like, they're all being lobbied. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, just from your point of view, what is the best action that a citizen can take to change the tide? Because with, with so much yeah, money involved in politics, I feel very helpless. You know, yeah, I get absolutely where you're coming from, Brittany, and and I've spoken and written extensively about this. I think the two things we need to do, first of all, let's identify where this originated. In 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court, up until from the founding of the Republic until 1976, giving money to politicians in exchange for them doing things for you was considered bribery and it was a crime. It was a felony. And in 76, the Supreme Court ruled in a a decision called Buckley versus Vallejo that if a rich person owns a politician or even dozens of politicians and those politicians dance to that rich, rich person's tune, that's no longer called bribery. That's called freedom of speech. Money is speech. So that's where that originated. And that's that brought us Reagan and that brought us the Reagan revolution. So we got to get money out of politics. There's only one party that has been working aggressively to get money out of politics, and that's been the Democratic Party. That said, there are still a lot of Democratic politicians who are taking big money and who are relatively corrupt. So the two things that we need to do, Brittany, is number one, we need to get inside the Democratic Party. Volunteer with your local in Los Angeles County, contact your county Democratic Party, and say, how can I participate? How can I become a precinct committee person? How can I become an insider and help turn this party progressive and help fight money in politics, number one. And number two, look for progressive politicians who are not corporate funded. You know, people like Congressman Mark Pocan or Ro Khan and some of these people who have come on our program from Jayapal, the Bernie Sanderses of the world, but a lot of them are much more low profile and do everything you can to help them. And, and in most cases, there's a lot you can do without spending a penny. You know, you can phone bank for people. You can you can, uh, you know, publicize what they're doing on social media. What we need is that political revolution. So those are the two big steps that I would say, Brittany, that we really need to be taking. Tag your it. Share progressive media with your friends, by the way, please. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 